So great to have you here again. Love this season in the church calendar, Eastertide. Again, just to kind of almost reshape um, and reconstruct our minds a little around the church calendar is a beautiful thing because it talks to us and speaks to us of six weeks of celebration before Pentecost. And that resurrection is not just a day, it is our entire lives. And we're going to kind of embody this over these six weeks. It's good. You doing well? Doing okay? Okay, so here's what we're going to do. If you have a Bible, we're going to jump right in. If you have a Bible and you want to open with me, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1. So the plan for Eastertide and through Pentecost is to actually walk through Paul's letter to the church in Colossae and excited to kind of do so slowly over the spring months. And we do this every year. So if you've been with us for like the last decade or more, we have hit a lot of the New Testament. I was thinking this week, you know, I get people move churches and and communities totally get it. But, you know, if you've been around for a while and rooted here, we have covered a lot of ground from the Gospel of Mark to Luke and Acts to now Ephesians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. We've gone through 1st and 2nd John, I think, Revelation, and now Colossians, along with some of the Old Testament books of Jonah. What else? There's some along the way. So, you know, I know sometimes people talk about depth. I hear Christians talk about wanting to go deeper. I think actually part of going deeper is showing up. Like in our context, trying to really think through what it means to slowly walk through this and ask some questions about what it means for us. And so... Uh, Colossians in particular, as I'm engaging it, is a beautiful letter and excited to walk through it. Now with that said, we're going to take a few minutes this morning and look at the beginning of Colossians chapter 1. And then I think next week we'll get into the poem that Paul gives in Colossians 1 that we looked at at Easter at last week. I'm not going to spend as much time around the writers and we'll obviously have context around this, but I'm not going to spend maybe as much time as I have in the past with like who wrote it and where this is coming from as I have with some of Paul's other letters. The fact is Paul has authority on this. There is some scholars that think that Timothy had his hand on this as well. And just to remember in the first century, it was more about authority than it was necessarily exactly who wrote it. And what I mean by that is Paul had a, kind of the authority as the apostle over this. Um, we know a couple things. One, it was written during his imprisonment. So he was in prison. There's debate on this. A lot of people think it's actually one of Paul's later letters where he's actually in house arrest in the city of Rome. Um, But N.T. Wright and some other really good scholars along the way have kind of pushed against that and say that Paul, they think, was in jail in Ephesus uh, when he wrote this letter. And so he writes it and he addresses the church in Colossae. A people, which is interesting, a community of people he has never met before, right? So Corinth... He's writing these letters. He knows these people. Colossae, he has never met these people. He did not start the church in Colossae. And so a a kind of a unique bent that he's writing to some people, brothers and sisters, he has never met in his life before. So early on in the letter, you hanging in there? Is this okay? Early on in the letter, we hear of this guy named Epaphras, who is actually the person who started the church in Colossae. And the story goes, Epaphras visited Paul in prison, came to him, 
updated him on what was happening in this church that he started. And he goes back from the Apostle Paul with this letter to help this church as they're newly forming in the way of Jesus. And just to slow down a little and continue to remind us that what we're reading here is somebody's mail, right? We've done this in the past. That the context of this is a letter written to them. And the heart of it really is that there is cultural pressure in their moment in the Roman Empire uh, to kind of lean and go certain directions within the community. And Paul just wants to encourage them to like give their lives and to press into some things that he thinks will be helpful instruction for them. And so as always, we pick these things up and we know it's written to a particular kind of people. It's to them, uh, but it's for us a couple millennia later as we, we pick it up. I love how N.T. Wright says, for Paul, all, everything, all is doctrine, all is practice to Paul, all is worship because of King Jesus. All is doctrine and what he's writing, all is practice. We're gonna learn a lot about his instruction and how he wants the church to kind of form and practice and all is worship. Are you out there? You with me? Wanna read a little Bible? We're at church. I think that's sufficient. Are you all right with that? Okay. Colossians 1. Let's start in verse 3. We'll go slowly a bit this morning. I think there's some gold here for us. Again, a couple millennia later. Paul says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Interesting here, and in Paul's other letters, that there is a sense that those that are in authority and apostles are praying and interceding for those in the churches. Because, Paul says, we've prayed for you because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you in the same way the gospel, listen to Paul's language, is bearing fruit and it's growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard and truly understood God's grace. I love that that can be true in our moment, that amongst all the shifts, especially in North America, because we're kind of like enlightened, right? There's lots of shifts in our post kind of Christian, post uh, whatever, post everything it feels like culture, that the gospel's still going forward. That no matter what we're kind of experiencing kind of in North America or you look out the windows to our own context and city, the gospel is going out everywhere. Paul goes on, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. Paul says, verse 7, you learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Verse 9. Still hanging in there? Oh, the Bible. Isn't it great? Since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. So Paul's never met these people. Since I heard about this community, I've not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to do this, to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Okay? so that you may, have a li- you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, 
bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Deep breath. Wow. Good stuff here. Okay. Paul, not met these people, but he sends this letter from Epaphras to the church community, and he begins, obviously, like his other letters, with a greeting. And then... Here is a few things that Paul says, this is what we are continually asking God for you. And I just wonder if it kind of hits the road for us. A few points, this is okay? Number one, Paul prays that God would fill you with the knowledge and wisdom that the Spirit gives. That ultimately, one of prayers Paul's, his greatest prayer, is that this church community in Colossae would grow in their knowledge of God. Now, why do you think Paul would talk about knowledge? Could it be because in the Greco-Roman world, there was this thing called Gnosticism that was prevalent in the day that kind of gave this vision of like there is secret knowledge out there. Even if you know a lot of the philosophers in the Greco-Roman world, it was like trying to be enlightened in certain ways. And then you get to this dude, Paul, who literally obviously had his own story of being against the way of Jesus and against Jesus and completely turned upside down. And Paul begins to reshape this idea for the church of what wisdom actually is. There's a battle, almost uh, uh, an ongoing kind of conflict throughout the New Testament letters of what, why, what wisdom actually is. To Paul, wisdom was the foolishness of the cross, was the story of Jesus. Paul was convinced that as he's handing down these letters and kind of giving oversight in many ways to these churches as an apostle, that one of the things that comes with this is the beauty that there is a different kind and a different type of knowledge. It's, brothers and sisters, it's not a secret. Come on, somebody. It's even fascinating when you read Paul's language, even in a a place like Ephesians, he calls certain things mysteries. He calls, this is funny, Heather's not here this morning, but he calls marriage a mega mystery. (laughs) Some of you are like, welcome, it is a mega mystery. But in light of that, he, he, he would even call the gospel at times a mystery. And then what does he do like sentences later? He tells us what it is. It's not a secret. The Gnostics, you're entering into this way where you don't even fully know. It's kind of out there. You're trying to figure it out. The way of Jesus is we have things passed along to us and wisdom is actually the story we're brought into, death, burial, and resurrection. It's the... F- yeah, we have to grapple with this. Wisdom in our context is the foolishness of the cross. How upside down in a culture, how utterly foolish this is. So last week we gathered together and while there's lots of things going on in the moment um, in our city, we are these people that gathered around a crucified Messiah, a, a tomb that's empty. This is what Paul is saying. So he prays for this community. I want you to have knowledge and wisdom 
I want you to have the knowledge and wisdom of God and it's completely upside down to the way of the world. It's not a secret, right? This is for everybody. You wanna lean into this? There are no secrets here. It's on display in the life of Jesus. So, Paul, I pray for this community. I want you to have knowledge. Then too, he says this. I want you, I'm praying, this is my prayer for y'all, Paul says, to live a life worthy of God and to please him. To live a life worthy. Now, we've talked about Paul's language here in other, other letters, and this is super important, okay? It's really, and you're like, you say that about everything. I'm sorry, it's just a thing, but this right here is really important. The word here, because when we hear live a life worthy, for some of us in this room, it feels like, man, that is a burden. You, do you ever hear that? Like, live a life worthy, and you're like, man, that is like a backpack full of weights and like trying to live up into God's standards. Fascinating that the word here, worthy, in the Greek language is the word axios. Can you say that with me, axios? If you want to be a Greek scholar, I'm telling you, you can dazzle some people at lunch. They'll just think you're amazing. This word axios has actually a lot of depth to it. Um, the great Eugene Peterson, huge, huge, we call him, one of my favorite theologians. He, uh, I just gave him that name. I don't know if I'm allowed, but we'll go with it. He suggests that when we see or hear this word axios in our minds, what we should do is we should get a picture of, you know, like those old, I mean, they're still out there, in a playground, those teeter-totter type scales, or uh, um, what do we call them? Uh, what do we call them? Yeah, scale. Thank you. Teeter-totter. My goodness, there's a billion things going on in my mind right now. Thank you. He says we should get an image in our head of the, like a teeter-totter type of scale, right? Um, I actually have one of these uh, at our, I think it's in our house in storage. It's an old antique scale where you literally weigh things out on one side towards the other. Don't have it here, obviously. I've brought it in, actually, as this illustration in the past. Um, the vision that Paul wants us to see with the word axios is a scale bringing equilibrium, right? Basically, with these scales, what happens is on one side you put something and you measure the weight of that thing by measuring it out on the other side until it becomes level. Uh, if you're you know, a parent, obviously, you get the picture of your kid on the side of the teeter-totter scale. Uh, you know, for me, it was like three or four kids on the one side, and then you would sit down and you would kind of balance it out. What's interesting in the ancient world is that when, those, when two sides of a scale are perfect in weight, they would use the term worthy. They would use the term axios. That's in their moment when something was balanced out Axios meant to have the same weight or value. Guys, there's something here. There's something here. You know, even in Ephesians 4, uh, Paul says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. And so in my mind, I think, and this is over and over, Paul is saying this, I want you to live worthy. I want you to live worthy. I want you to live worthy. And in my mind, what I see is on the one side, Paul would put our walk, right? On the one side would be what you and I in this room have voluntary control over. Some things that you and I have voluntary control over in our walk with King Jesus and some of the things that we cultivate and do. On the other side of the scale is God's call. And I think what Paul is saying here when he says live a life worthy, Paul believes 
that God's call and our walk are to be absolutely balanced. That God's call and our walk are to be axios. That they actually impart what they do is they carry the same weight. And this is actually the way in which Paul fashions his letters. So in Ephesians, if you read the letter of Ephesians, I know we're in Colossians, don't worry. But in Ephesians, Ephesians has six chapters. And guess how many, how many commands for the community that are receiving this letter, guess how many commands are in the first three chapters of Ephesians? Anybody know? Zero. Zero, you guessed it. I put that in my notes thinking you would guess it, but... You guessed right if you said zero. Zero. Paul spends the first half of the letter, if you read Ephesians, identifying and exhorting the church's call. Over and over and over and over, he speaks of their identity as the Jesus community. No commands. He calls them adopted and chosen sons and daughters. Then he spends the last three chapters instructing them in how they're to live. First we're called, zero commands then we walk and live this out, right? The interesting thing is that in all of this, there's a verse in, in Ephesians, Ephesians 4.1, and it's the linchpin. Live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Paul actually uses his letters in his writing to show us that, uh, like, who we are in his kingdom, but also what we're called to do, and that these things actually must be in balance together. You following me? So think of it like this. Because some of us feel the weight. Live a life worthy, guys. And you're like, do you know my life? Do you know who I am? Yeah, I do, right? We do. <laughs> it's good. Maybe the picture is this. On, and I've used this before. On, I got to get this right. I know Heather isn't here. On June 30th, 2007, I became a husband. It was a good day. Sawmill golf course outside of Sarnia the wind blowing in the air, the breeze blowing under the canopy that we were kind of having our wedding at. In that moment, did I know anything of what it was like to be a husband? The absolute answer to that is no. I had no idea. I was, in a moment, it was interesting, in a moment, I was declared a husband in that moment. I had, I, I had no idea. No matter the amount of premarital counseling and like the monopoly money and how you do a budget and all the talk of everything, the books, the marriage stuff, all of it, I did not know what I was doing. But in that moment, I was declared a husband and I had to live into who I was. Following me? On uh, July 30th, 2008, after 36 hours of hard labor on me. <laughs> epidural, epidural, it was great. Watching baseball, it was wonderful. Um, <laughs> you're like, I know, I'm sorry. Uh, so much I can say today with Heather not here, it's great. So you just, uh, that's between us, okay? Um, you know, July 30th, Ava comes into our lives and I, I hold her. I have this picture of her. I'm in a... <laughs> I'm in a pink polo shirt with the collar popped because it was 28 to 2008. And I literally look like I'm, I literally look like I'm 16 years old holding this, this bundle of joy. And in a moment, I was a dad. Did I have any sweet clue of what it 
what, what it meant to, or any form of understanding of what, what it meant to be a dad. Absolutely not. I had to live into who I was. And when Paul says live a life worthy, and he says it here again in Colossians, I pray that you just live into who you already are. When we see it, when the scales are balanced, it changes the whole game because I think this is what Paul is saying and what it means to be a disciple. You, brothers and sisters, you and I are worthy, so live a life that's worthy. Go do it. It's not about climbing a ladder or trying to like appease God. It is about him declaring who we are and then us leaning into that. The gospel is this crazy, epic news that we don't have to climb a ladder. He actually came to us. We are called, and then out of this calling, we walk and we live our lives. And so these things, in axios, these things work together to balance the scale above anything else and what it means to be mature as a follower of Jesus. I, I would I actually, that's what I would sum maturity up. A lot of people talk about maturity as Christians. It is about God's call, and our walk in balance together. Not a bunch of God's call without doing anything, right? And not a bunch of doing anything without God's call. It's those things together, you know. I, I get thinking about this, and please, you know, forgive me if I'm being a little judgmental, but I do feel like there's a propensity as humans to have these two things out of balance. So a lot of people believe being a disciple is all about God's call. And I grew up in communities like this where it was just all about what is God saying? What is God saying? It's up to him. I even hear kind of in our moment, people talk about things like meticulous sovereignty, right? Or God's control. You're like, are we going there? Maybe not in depth this morning, but I hear these statements and they're made out as though God is going to do everything whether we play our part or not. That God's in, like, God is sovereign, God's in control, so it's like the, that Robaxison commercial, you know, with the pull on the strings and everybody's just kind of doing their thing. This is kind of the vision we have of God. The problem with that is that when you read the narrative of Scripture, God has always been looking for people that would cooperate with him, right? Just look at humanity in the garden, looking for proto-human in relationship to Abraham and to Israel, to the church post-Pentecost. We begin to see, you, you kind of seeing what I mean? God is looking for people that would actively participate. And the problem is when we think God's call is the only thing that matters, then the scale is out of balance. God's call. Our responsibility down here, it's out of whack, right? It's not axios. The problem is that just as much as we can be guilty for thinking God's call is the only thing that matters, there can be the opposite dysfunction in thinking it's just all about what I do. If I get everything kind of in order, if I go to the right school, if I do the right things, that everything is kind of, kind of work out and maybe God is speaking and saying things but we're not listening. I often rub shoulders with people that have convinced themselves that if we just do more good in the world, everything will get better and you guys know we are all for justice and mercy. We're all, we're, we're le leaning into that absolutely. But it's almost like we're trying to bring shalom and the kingdom of God without the king and his call and the scale is out of balance, right? We need axios, the balancing of God's call and our walk. And this is what I really believe. This is what it means to be a mature follower of Jesus. Huge, huge puts it like this when he says, <laughs> I'm going to miss you, Lexi. I'm going to, yeah, just, at least somebody laughs. You know, I got some. 
should be in the front row laughing. It just makes my, it just validates me so much. It's great. Um, <laughs> Eugene Peterson puts it like this. He says, when our walking and God's call are in balance, listen to what he says, we are whole. We are living maturely, living responsively to God's calling, living congruent with the way God calls us into being. Axios, he says, worthy, mature, healthy, robust. He says, when God's calling and our walking fit, we are growing up in Christ. God calls, we walk, axios. And so actually in Colossians chapter one, when Paul says this here, you know, he says to live or to walk, that's actually the better probably picture of walking in uh, what is worthy. Basically, you could kind of translate it like this. We are to walk like we belong to God. Love that. I, Paul is saying, I pray that you brothers and sisters would walk and live this thing out like you belong to God. And it's not climbing a ladder. You've heard me say, you know, Dallas Willard always put it best when he said, grace isn't opposed to effort, but to earning. We're not earning anything. We're walking in this effort, moving forward, striving forward in the grace and peace of King Jesus. So one, Paul prays for this community. I want you to be filled with knowledge. Two, he prays, I want you to live worthy, live a life worthy and please him. Three, he prays this. I pray that you would be strengthened with power and that you would have endurance and patience. Fascinating that this is to like a young community. If you know anything, we'll get more into this over the letter, but Colossae uh, wasn't a very influential city. So some of the other letters that he wrote that we looked at, like Ephesians was the powerhouse city in the world, like the New York City of the time. Um, uh, Corinthians as well, a harbor city, lots of buzz. Colossae was this little kind of backwoods place. It was uh, actually in the kind of the the shadow of Laodicea, uh, a prominent town kind of near it. And just fascinating how the the power dynamics even in this city or in this place are so much different than what we've read. And yet Paul still says, "I, I pray that God would strengthen you with power that you would have endurance and patience to move forward. And Paul wasn't out of touch he knew this is a young community in the ancient, Medipotra- ancient, Medipotra- ancient Mesopotamian, in the Greco-Roman world. He knew that Caesar was in, uh, again, in living in the shadow of Caesar and all that's going on in the first century world. Paul knew what it meant to kind of pray endurance and patience into his people. Patience, we've talked lots over these years, man, is the fundamental, I think one of the fundamental practices of the church, especially now post kind of whatever you want to call it, evangelicalism, where we've had our moment here the last 30 or 40 years, and in some ways it hasn't gone overly great for the church in many ways. We have an opportunity as a community to live patiently, that this is actually something Paul prays, I believe, on the church, and I think is something that we should pick up in a, in, a, in a world of like quick fixes and again we saw and I was even a part of this trying to kind of get everybody into the kingdom and trying to find every tactic to kind of grow the church that Paul over and over his growth method was like patience endurance stability giving your lives to a community and to a people in a place all of this so upside down and then four listen to what Paul says we're going to come to the tables in just a second 
he prays that they would give joyful thanks to God. Interesting that gratitude is actually part of this. That one of the things Paul is praying on this community is that they would express joyful thanks continually to God. That there's something that actually marks a community when there's gratitude. And I know you're probably thinking, please, counselor guy, no brain science, but let me just say something we can actually re-engineer our thoughts when we practice gratitude. There's studies around this, evidence-based things that show that actually we can, over time, change the way we feel. And I'm not saying that Paul was thinking brain science when he was writing this, but just to say there is something that happens within us when we practice gratitude, and Paul knows this. This is his prayer for the community. That in this this little place, that is trying to be swayed to and fro from the cultural norm in the Roman Empire, he prays for them and he says, brothers and sisters, I pray that you have wisdom. I pray that you live a life worthy. I pray that you would be strengthened with power and endurance, a different kind of power, a patience, and I pray that you would give joyful thanks to God. You with me? This, brothers and sisters, is for us. If any moment, any time, these letters, I always say to people as we look at these, these first century letters, if any church is like the first century church, it is the post-Christian church in our more moment. We are more like these churches here, and I know we're in a glass room and white walls and coffee and Perrier or whatever. I know there's some differences, but I think if there's any moment that's as close to the first century as we could get, it's probably right now in our moment, and I think we pick this up and we embody it. So Paul prays those four things over the community, but listen to how he ends this little kind of section before he gets to the poem. He says this, I pray all of this, so what? Look at verse 12. So that you could share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. That's like charged imagery of what God did in the Old Testament through Israel. So He did it his way. God did it his way. He picks out a people, a family, we talked about this last week, that would be a light to the nations and they screw up royally over and over. And yet it's a family that would actually participate in the redemption of the world. That yes, Jesus the Messiah goes into the grave, takes upon the sins of the world, but that when we come into faith and we come into participation in the community, we, you and I, this is the mind-blowing thing about all of this, is we actually share in the inheritance just as God's holy people. We share in the inheritance of this kingdom. Right here, right now, but someday when Jesus comes to wipe every tear away and bring heaven back to earth, it will be forever. The kingdom of light will win. He goes on, verse 13, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. And he ends it by saying, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Brothers and sisters, the prayer on us, the prayer on this community in the first century, but also what we adopt and we pick up, pushes us to the reality that we are now adopted into this kingdom of light. You and I are adopted into the family of God. We have an inheritance. And is there any better season? Now you get in why we're walking and wrestling through this in Eastertide. Is there any better time on the church calendar to go, yo, this is for us right here and right now. Resurrection is not just a day, it's six weeks. We lean into this and the inheritance that God has for us is right now. We are in his kingdom now, but it will live on forever. This is what resurrection does. It messes 
with a little backwoods town in the first century and it messes with us today because it gives us, it gives us and draws us into this great invitation to live worthy, right? God's call, our walk, those things together. And so we're gonna conclude as we do every gathering by coming to the tables. I know some of you are new with us. Uh, it's pretty sanitary. I know it was less sanitary last week, which was awesome. Thank you, Kathy and the guys. And maybe we should just go back to that at some point here. Um, right now, today, we can't, on the fly, we can't do that right now. It's very sanitary and that's okay. It's a symbol of God's love for us. There's a pack at the back and uh, Lexi and uh, Alice are gonna come and lead us and we're just gonna open up some opportunity to respond and to reflect. And as part of this, I just want us to remember as we walk the, the aisle down towards to just grab the emblems this morning, that this is our inheritance. He's rescued you and I from the dominion of darkness and he's brought us into the kingdom of his son. And Jesus reminds us that when we, when we take the bread and cup, no matter what it is, in the first century it was in a home around a meal and we do that as well the first Sunday of every month. But even if we take it in more sanitary ways, it's a reminder that we are, as we remember Jesus, we inherit this king and his kingdom, okay? Let's stand up. Um, you can take that on your own this morning when you grab it and as part of our worship, the words are gonna be on the screen as we respond and my prayer this morning for us is that as we worship together that God would do something unique within us, work within us. So that's our prayer, King Jesus. Come and work among us. Have your way. Have your power, work in power this morning, I pray, as we even flip the lid on this little cup and bread. May it be a reminder of your broken body and your blood poured out. But it, may it also be a reminder of our inheritance, the king in the kingdom. In Jesus' name, Jesus' name.